Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And sitting in in our uh, fourth co-host chair, we have Franklin Leonard, the, uh, I was going to say founder of The Blacklist, but I feel like I'm going to mess up your title, so maybe you should just tell us yourself. I mean, founder of The Blacklist works. Uh, It is accurate and succinct. So yeah, let's go with that. Hi, everybody. Hey, Franklin. Thank you so much for, for joining us. No, it's it's a good distraction on today, if, not, if nothing else. <laughs> well, we had an entire episode that we had planned, including a rewatch of Gosford Park and some more Emmy season interviews, and we basically scrapped it, given the news of the world, the ongoing protests over the death of George Floyd. Uh, so we have Franklin on, and then in the back half of this episode, uh, we're going to share an interview that I did with Tanana Reeve Du, the horror expert and screenwriter and author and teacher who wrote a piece for VanityFair.com this week about her experience as the child of civil rights activists and watching protests that happened in Miami in 1980 and reflecting on the current moment and also uh, her love of horror and how she kind of uses that as a way to filter the many bad things in the world, uh, moments like this included, and also what she sees going forward happening for Hollywood. And uh, Franklin, I initially asked you to join us because of a uh, you tweeted a GIF at the Academy that I found was particularly uh, relevant to us in our Oscar obsession. But I think you rightly uh, said that we had a bigger conversation to have about Hollywood and how it has been responding in the past week to the ongoing uh, protests about police brutality and the death of George Floyd. Um, it's a lot to talk about, but uh, do you want to talk about why you were maybe needling the Academy first? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that April Rain, and, and all credit to her for sort of launching the hashtag Oscar So White, I think laid bare a lot of the places where the Academy had failed to confront the, the industry's history of white supremacy. And so, you know, I thought that the Academy's statement felt toothless to me, given the direct exposure they've had to a lot of these issues over the last couple of years. And so I retweeted it with a GIF 
intentionally comedically from Green Book, uh, where Mahershala is telling Viggo Mortensen that, that, that his letters to his wife are pathetic. Um, <laughs> and as, uh, as Jamil Smith from Rolling Stone pointed out, that there were multiple levels uh, to that gif. I will say I've used that gift a couple of times in the last couple of days. And it's a really good gift. It's a really good gift. And so if Green Book gave us nothing else, it gave us that. Um, <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. So, look, I think at the end of the day, though, and I think people have, have rightly pointed this out, the, Academy is, is, the issues the Academy is having are, are symptoms, uh, not the problem, uh, even though yeah. those symptoms can, be, can contribute to the problem being greater. Um, and so it was, as much as it, it was a criticism of the Academy statement, it was also intentionally snarky because there are bigger problems than the Oscars and there are bigger problems than the Academy, but, but that is one front on which we must work to accomplish the goals that we have uh, for a more equitable society and a more equitable culture. So, Yeah, I should say that the Academy statement read in part, the Academy adds its voice to the call for justice. We must shine a brighter light on racism and do our part to step up to this moment. But as I think you were pointing out, does not actually include any concrete action or recommendations or donations or anything. Um, and you on Twitter have been calling out a, a, a fair number of toothless statements along these lines from other uh, Hollywood institutions. Yeah, I mean, I haven't limited my ire to, to Hollywood by any means. I think that... Um, <laughs> Look, I, I think that a lot of these companies that are putting out, you know, these sort of three paragraph statements that that include in them, you know, really terrible writing and a, a lack of appreciation of the reality on the ground uh, can turn around, you know, 100 page contracts overnight when there's money on the table. But when their employees lives, their black employees lives are actually on the line, the best they can do is is three mediocre paragraphs that, that don't even call for specific action. That's troubling to me, um, and I think it's reflective of the uh, the lack of seriousness that a lot of these companies take this issue, and that's part of the reason I think we find ourselves in the situation that we're in now. Yeah, and I think that something that's um, interesting, you, you wrote something for us a couple of years ago about... Um, uh, related to Frederick Douglass and being photographed and, and the power of that kind of, you know, sort of visual ubiquity, I guess. And I think right now a lot of industries, you know, who have a significant place in American society are doing these kind of placating things, but not addressing the bigger thing behind all that. Um, yeah. But specifically with Hollywood, I think, you know, what you talked about in the essay you wrote for us was about that these kind of individual moments of a triumph of this thing winning the Oscar, or this, you know, uh, this movie doing well, it, it's, it, it's, it's representational, but it's not thorough, it's not total. And I think that we're seeing kind of the limits of those sort of notional token gestures now, uh, instead of actual institutional, really thought through changes. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and thank you for the kind words about that essay. I was very nervous about writing it, if only because it was for Vanity Fair. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a very high standard of expectation. Um, but look, fundamentally for me, I think that Hollywood has failed to begin to grapple with the extent to which it has been complicit in white supremacy. You know, and, and look, I'm a numbers guy, so let me just cite numbers. 60% of the gang members shown on on in movies are black, but 30% of the gang members in America are black. I wonder why people assume that black folks are criminal. Could it be because they've had images of black criminals disproportionately 
projected 40 feet high and on their televisions and on their streaming platforms for as long as Hollywood has existed. Like we shouldn't forget the birth of a nation was Hollywood's first blockbuster. And we haven't as an industry done much to unwind the kind of white supremacist thinking that resulted in that being the case. We still live in a world where there is an assumption that black actors have less value abroad than white actors, and therefore it is harder to get movies with black actors made. And yet everybody in this business, particularly folks who have green light power, want to pat themselves on the back for saying black lives matter when they themselves don't value black lives equally or black actors equally to the white actors they would prefer to put in movies. And that has consequences, not just for film, not just for television, but for the black people who watch those movies or the absence of those movies, for the white folks who watch those movies and you know, consume a notion of black criminality that they carry with them when they go back out in the street, to white police officers who carry the notion of black criminality when they go back out on their beat. And um, we are living the consequences of that. And by the way, it doesn't just, it's not just about black people, though that's obviously the one that's sort of most proximate in our mind right now. I think it was over the last 10 years on television, 50% of the Latinx immigrants shown on TV were shown engaged in some criminal activity. When folks in middle America are chanting, build the wall, because they believe that Latinx immigrants are criminals, it's not because they have a direct experience with the Latino who's a criminal. It's because they have seen on the programs that we in this industry make that Latinx immigrants are criminals. So until we actually start making content that's reflective of the world as we actually live in it and not some sort of fantasy of white supremacy, we should reasonably expect more of the same. And frankly, that's terrifying on many levels, but one of them is we could all be making more money by, by being less white supremacist. Um, and yet we still choose not to be. And that's really scary. Franklin, I'm curious. I mean, I, I grew up, I was born in 1975. I grew up in the 80s where these stereotypes you were talking about were like in full effect. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, like for Eddie Murphy to play a lead role, he generally had to be either a criminal or a cop that everybody, you know, hilariously kept confusing for a criminal. Yep. Um, and, and obviously in the last few years, you know, Hollywood seems to be making efforts, right, to at least undermine that frequently because it is entertainment. They sort of start with an assumption and then and then, you know, convert it and stuff. I'm just curious, like, how much progress do you think has been made? Where do you think it's been good? Where do you think it's like been, you know, either falling way short or uh, counterproductive even. I'm just, I'm just curious, and you know, you're not responsible yeah. for judging all of this, but, but as a, an astute and uh, thoughtful observer, I'm curious what your thoughts are on all that. It's a good question that I'm not sure I have the answer to, and part of the reason I don't feel like I have the answer is I don't have the numbers yet. Right. Um, but, but honestly, the, the lack of availability of the numbers may be the most obvious uh, example, like sort of evidence that there's not a lot of progress made. For example, what is the demographic reality of the clients of the major agencies? I don't know. And they're certainly not providing that information. What are the demographics of the agents at the major agencies? I don't know. And they're not providing that information. 
you know, yes, we all know names of highly visible black filmmakers that we didn't know 10 years ago, Ava DuVernay, Ryan Coogler, Barry Jenkins, et cetera. But, you know, there was a wave of, of talented black filmmakers in the late 90s, too, and they were shunted to the side relatively quickly. So... I don't believe that will happen this time, to be clear, but it's not because I believe the industry has sort of woken up to the reality that, uh, of the role that white supremacy has played in, in its functioning. It's because I just believe, and I've watched a lot of this talent come through and say, look, you can either work with me on my terms or I'm gonna go do it on my own and you're not gonna have a chance at even getting the money that I make, so you might as well work with me here. Right. Um, and so I have a great deal of faith in the talent of these folks that are coming from outside of the system, um, far more than I have faith in the system to self-interrogate and address the things that, um, address the places that it's failed. Well, the thought of the system self-interrogating is almost comically absurd, right? I mean, it, it is, we, we talk about this a lot with, with black directors, with women directors. It's like every single time you have a hit, everybody's like, oh my God, what a surprise. And yet it just keeps happening over and over again, but somehow it never seems to penetrate the mentality, right? It doesn't, that, that like, like we have to just learn the lesson over and over again anytime somebody finally pushes through to get a project made. I think that's right. And that's why I think the real solution is that the people who have the power to make the decisions about what gets made have to change. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm targeting any individual. I just think on a macro level, if you were to put everybody in a room that had the power to greenlight a movie in Hollywood, it would not look like America or the world. And I think that the more that room looks like America, the more likely it will be to accept the data in front of them uh, and the success of these movies and make decisions driven by the data and not decisions by uh, driven by sort of assumptions that are, you know, conventional wisdom born of white supremacy and other and, and patriarchy and a lot of other things that is all convention and no wisdom, right? Like when my black friends who work in the business see a black movie succeed, it's not a surprise. That's the expectation because we've seen tons of black movies succeed. And we know that if you make a black movie and you market it well, it will do well. Similarly, a lot of my female friends when it's like, oh yeah, obviously a, a good female driven action movie is going to make money. But you know, if you go to the folks who actually have the green light power, they're like, wait, this doesn't, this success doesn't square with my assumptions about the world. Therefore, no matter how much data I have, I'm going to act like the data doesn't exist. And I'm going to assume my assumptions are right. And just, you know, these are outliers when the reality is the outliers should be the thing determining your, you know, best fit line. And, and it's funny because like I, I've gotten into squabbles about this on Twitter with people who are like, you know, why do you make everything about race? And I'm like, look, honestly, like I'm less offended by this as a black man than I am someone who was on the math team in high school. Like get your <laughs> like, get your model right and then and, and listen to the data. I, I really don't care if you're a racist at home. Just like don't. Don't let your racism prevent you and me from making money. <laughs> I think a lot of those assumptions are predicated also on what some people in the industry um, might view as precedent, as history. Um, yeah. When the fact of the matter is, is that the people keeping the history oftentimes have not been keeping it accurately or thoroughly. I'm putting together a list of kind of... Uh, of Pride films because it's June. And in that process, I was watching Cheryl Dunye's, um The Watermelon Woman from like 1996. Yeah. 
where she's investigating a fictional actress from the 1930s who was, you know, known as credited as the watermelon movie in in a sort of, you know, plantation drama. Um, you know, it's she's a fictional actress, it's a, it's a fake movie, but like in the film Dunye is getting at not only her lesbian identity but at her black identity, but that of a filmmaker saying it's not that these people didn't exist. It's not that these audiences didn't exist. It's just the record was not fairly kept. And so many people now who are part of the, the problem can cite like, you know, an, an imagined precedent. Well, you know, historically, these things kind of don't do well, or these tropes are what are popular. And yep. that's because they're the ones doing the history keeping and, and kind of put, you know, leaving things out in the cold that, that deserve to be part of the record. Yeah. I mean, like my favorite thing was when I would ask, like, wait, why aren't you marketing these black movies abroad? I'd be told by, you know, folks who work in international distribution, like, oh, well, it's impossible to market black movies abroad. What about these and these and these examples? And I was like, okay, well, how much money did you spend on marketing those examples in the market? Well, none, because you can't market them. And I'm like, do you not see the circular logic here? Um, like, you're using your previous failure to justify not trying. And, you know, that's literally how no progress is made. And, and again, it's not just about black folks. It's about queer cinema. It's about, you know, uh, cinema that centers women. It's about cinema that centers the disabled community. Um, you know, that was a real blind spot for me. Like I was always, you know, feeling pretty good about the extent to which I was an inclusive person, but I wasn't prioritizing 25% of the population that's a member of the disabled community. And, and there is, you know, precious little representation for them. Now, obviously it's a slightly different historical context than, than black Americans, but still, like, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to constantly do that self-interrogation and be really honest with us that we're not lending ourselves to the evils that we supposedly condemn, because it's very easy to slip into that if you're not. And I, and I, look, I have probably made errors myself and I appreciate anybody calling me out on them so that I can force that interrogation on myself. It feels like we've gone through these moments like multiple times, even in the last five years, being like, oh, well, you know, Oscar's so white. That means we can't look past these issues again or the success of Get Out or, you know, various other Ferguson or other yeah. protests. Does this one feel different at all to you so far in how like Hollywood institutions that we're talking about that are so resistant to change? Does it feel like anything is actually different this time? I have yet to see evidence that it is or rather I've yet to see ev a compelling evidence that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen compelling evidence yet that it is. I hope so. Yeah. But, you know, the corporate statements of solidarity don't give me a great deal of faith. Not because they're happening, but because of the, the content of them. But we'll see. And to the extent that people want to do that work, I am definitely uh, available to talk. You know, one conversation is probably free, but I'm not in the business of, of giving my labor for free to, to folks who will then profit from it. I yeah. have... I have family members who've done plenty of that uh, going back several generations. So I want to keep that to a minimum going forward. I saw you uh, tweeting a deadline story about um, Bad Robot or maybe not the J.J. Abrams Foundation giving yeah, a Yeah, J.J. Really and Katie. Yeah, like so I kind of that as an example of being like, hey, if you really feel like you're trying to be on the right side of things, like this is your chance to step up. Like, is, is there any evidence of more of that happening at least? Well, I mean, look, I, I want to say one thing about J.J. and Katie, which is this $10 million, which notably is exactly the same amount that all of Facebook is giving. And, <laughs> and JJ and Katie are very rich and very successful, but they're not all of Facebook rich and successful. Um, they've been doing a lot of work for a very long time, and they've been doing it without publicizing it at all. And I think they'd be mortified that I'm even noting that, but I'm just going to note it. But yeah, like you say you have money, you say Black Lives Matter, 
As my dad says, don't tell me your priorities. Show me your budget. And it also seems like evidence that, like, trying to get an entire studio to change the way they want to market movies abroad might be something beyond an average rich person. But every rich person has the ability to give some money, at least. Well, I think it's both. Right. And I think that that JJ is actually a really good example of this. Right. Like JJ and Katie gave 10 million dollars. I think it's two million dollars a year for the next five years with uh, some immediate emergency funds sort of happening like this week. But JJ also put John Boyega in, you know, the first Star Wars reboot. And I'm guessing that wasn't the studio's first choice. And and he also made sure Daisy Ridley was the star of it. Right. Uh, he, he also had Victoria Mahoney shoot second unit uh, on the most on his most recent Star Wars movie. So I, I think that if you're if you're rich and you're powerful, regardless of your racial background, I think using your access, using your resources to support the the, the causes you support and the world you want to see is an obligation. And I, I will applaud it when people do it. But I don't think it's as simple as, OK, I wrote a check. I can walk away or, you know, I cast an actor. I can walk away. It's that has to be part of your daily practice of living. Right. Like you don't say, you know, I'm a I'm a good person because I was nice to one person once you have to keep being a nice person. And similarly, you don't get to say that you're an anti-racist because you gave to an anti-racist cause. You have to be anti-racist as a matter of practice. And so while I applaud individual data points, it's, it's the, the trend line that, that matters most to me. Another conversation that I, I've seen a lot, you know, kind of in film Twitter, but also in the, in the broader discourse uh, in the past week or so, in a way that I haven't seen quite before, is another issue of representation in film and television, which is police. And, you know, I, I think that... <laughs> it can be easy for someone who doesn't agree that representation matters to sort of say, well, you're, you're going to blame, you know, Satanism on rock music or whatever, you know, whatever the kind of tired old saw is. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there was an article in New York magazine that uh, Abe Reisman wrote, um, former, he, a former employee of theirs, uh, about how the Punisher, the, the Marvel character turned into a TV show and a movie, several movies, I believe, is a favorite among police officers and people in the military, uh, which is a pretty bleak and scary idea. Um, we see some of the, we see a lot of that ideology practiced on the streets of many cities and towns across the country, uh, obviously. And so I'm wondering, like, what Hollywood is doing, you know, just kind of thinking out loud, like, whether that kind of reckoning of how police and law enforcement, um, well, supposed law enforcement, uh, function in our cultural national lore, because it's so hard to unknot from everything we think about archetypes in terms of characters and stories. But it seems like that's another place where we really have to do a ton of unearthing and rethinking things. Because, you know, I remember after, um, I think it was Sandy Hook or one of the you know horrible school shootings, that we've had in the past 15 years, 20 years, um, I, I kind of did a count of all the posters on uh, from that that year in film uh, that had a gun in, on, on the you know in the poster, and it was like hundreds. It was so many. So we keep you know Hollywood keeps perpetuating a thing that we now see having terrible deleterious effects on actual people's lives. Um, yeah, no, I think you make a, an incredibly good point. And in fact, in January of this year, Color of Change, um, the Civil Rights Advocacy Organization put out a report called Normalizing Injustice, the Dangerous Misrepresentations that Define Television Scripted Crime Genre. And basically what they found was that, you know, you have all of these crime shows that are enormously popular on, on television and all of them hire, you know, police departments and retired officers as consultants. 
and they often sort of present this like very complimentary depiction of police officers as like these complex and nuanced and valorized characters. Meanwhile, the the, the criminals that they're prosecuting are obviously uh, bad and disproportionately uh, of color. And in fact, to the sort of wildest part of that, of the 26 cop shows, I think that were on the air that they found, 20 of them either had no black writers or just one black writer. And that among the showrunners on these shows, 81% of them are white men, which is not an accurate reflection of the population, if you're wondering. And I think that, like, yeah, it, it has a really poisonous effect. Because, again, if, if, if we're all sitting at home and watching these stories about who cops are and the role they play, uh, when we then encounter a cop, we're going to be more in, in the context of uh, an event like the George Floyd situation or Flanda Castillo or any of the dozens of black people who were unarmed and killed by police in the last year or two. Um, and they say, oh, no, they were attacking me. We're going to be more inclined to believe them. And thank God for camera phones. And now we can say, actually, here's the video. You literally had a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds we can actually sort of come to some sense of justice. But even that is more difficult because then you've got to put them on, a, you know, you've got to try them and there's a jury that has been consuming this fire hydrant of images about the valorization of police and law enforcement. And it, uh, it tilts the scales. Yeah, I, was, I recently watched um, the film Black and Blue with Naomi Harris uh, that uh, Dion Taylor directed, which is about, um, you know, a black police officer who witnesses something with her body cam and then is pursued through New Orleans uh, by bad cops. And, you know, the the, the resolution, I'm not going to spoil it, but, you know, it, it kind of reaches a point of ambivalence that feels a little frustrating because it seems to me that it's very clear that there's one bad side and one good side. But but I but I think that, you know, you have another film like uh, Mary J. Blige is uh, in, a, in a horror movie called Body Cam, where she also plays a police officer who catches something on her body cam. And obviously, body cams and 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 that kind of thing we're, is something we're talking about. But what you don't want to see is it becoming just a kind of flash in the pan trend, a, a trope because it's on Twitter or it's in the news, that then doesn't get further baked into the DNA of how we think about police stories. I don't think police stories are going to go anywhere in film and television, but I think there's certainly a way to make, and you can still have them be entertaining and and dramatic and and thrilling and suspenseful and all that stuff without. Um, reinforcing so much stuff that absolutely undeniably has an effect on how uh, real police are conceived of in in the real world. I, I think it's a really good point. Look, I think that the f- my problem is not with the existence of movies that valorize a police officer, right? Like, I actually happen to believe that, that being police is a very dangerous job uh, and that the people who do it well should be applauded, right? What concerns me is the mythologizing of police as an organization and the notion that, you know, if you're police, you're good um, and that police by default are good because that's, you know, no more true than it is for any other or any other group of people. Isn't it isn't it so much about othering? I mean, like I've midway through a rewatch of The Wire and um, oh, same, same know, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So we just finished uh, season three, and obviously a lot of white guys in the uh, writers' room, and um, you know, I'm sure there were uh, you know cops advising on it, and and it traffics in a lot of stereotypes, uh, and you might even say that it sort of um, not excuses but normalizes for sure police brutality. But you at least get 
an opportunity to see through everybody's eyes in the whole show, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that it isn't that sort of like the the thing that that entertainment and art is supposed to do, and it's not yeah. really art is not supposed to be cleanly moral and not everything that we create and watch is supposed to be sort of something that we can like safely celebrate, but it should at least be honest and attempt to uh, achieve empathy. Right. And I feel like that is where, where um, Hollywood has really fallen down on the job for a long time. And I feel like, you know, I don't know that that's my thought. I think you're right. And I think that the wire does a very good job of sort of presenting a a kaleidoscopic view of the realities of, of law enforcement. And my whole thing is like, I think I've tweeted this before, but like, I don't need every movie to represent everybody, but I do need all movies in aggregate to represent everybody. And I think the the danger that we have is, is that, you know, when you aggregate all of the cop shows, they present a disproportionate, arguably propagandist view of, of who police are and what role law enforcement plays in society and who the real villains are. And that's the thing that concerns me most. Any individual show, like, sure, whatever, man, enjoy The Punisher. But there should be a bunch of other things that are out there that lay bare the deep flaws with The Punisher's perspective and vice versa, right? Like, I, I don't have the right point of view. I think that I can defend my points of view in a lot of cases. But, like, let's have a diverse representation of ideas in many of these spaces but you know good it's a lot harder to get the naomi harris movie or the j-lo movie made uh and tell those kinds of stories about police than it's ever going to be to to tell the story of like you know a bunch of swat officers kicking the hell out of some black and brown people well you're right and and in a way i shouldn't even say othering is always uh is entirely bad to your point you know you watch movies that are made for black audiences and there can be some pretty hilarious othering of white people and it can be quite bracing and helpful to see that but yeah it's just it's just having more uh, swings at bat i feel like right it's just like there there should be people should not be boxed out of the creative effort and yeah. and they won't be uh, in the sense that anyone can create anything, but the money is still you know in one in the hands of a small group of folks for now. Mm-hmm. It feels like for a long time, um, you know, within the last ten years, I guess, as streaming has evolved, like there's been this sense like, oh, the doors are open. There's more creatives from all different backgrounds. Like you think of Orange as a new black as being seen as this vanguard of having more voices on television. Um, and obviously there's more streaming platforms than ever. We've got Peacock still on the way somehow. Um, does that dream still feel alive for you, um, Franklin, from the perspective you are where you're watching this develop and happen more than we are just seeing what comes down the pipeline? Like, is there still the sense that the doors are more open as there's just so many more ways for us to watch things? Yeah, I think they are. I think that, you know, look, anytime you shift the volume of suppliers, there are more like there are more shots on goal, right? And some and someone's gotta take them. And I think that like there is the dawning realization that, you know, there are a lot of talented people uh, coming from these communities and that there's a large audience in these communities. I think the real question is is we've seen this before, right? Like Fox became a a viable broadcast network in large part by programming black shows. And then the second they were viable, those black shows disappeared and they tried to sort of pivot their way into being a more white network. I think the real question is, is, you know, do, do you have companies that are using 
content about people of color as a, a short-term strategy and then to vacate them, that's not good. But if they continue to embrace the success that these shows bring, I think it can be a good thing. And I think that, again, to come back to this idea that, like, at the end of the day, because of technology, like, if y'all aren't willing to work with these extraordinarily talented filmmakers on their terms, they will go elsewhere and make money for themselves or somebody else. So, you know, get, get a piece. Franklin, I have another question for you, which is uh, increasing the pipeline of of folks who even have the opportunity to get into the entertainment business. And, and we, we have a similar issue, I think, in journalism. And is there anyone doing a good job of, you know, my father taught at a um, all-girls school, uh, Catholic high school in Newark, New Jersey for, for 25 years. And so saw up close a lot of the struggles of education in a city like Newark. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anyone that you can think of who is doing a good job at that level of making sure that, you know, talented people are not stuck in a cycle of poverty where they never even get the chance to, you know, to have their voices uh, considered in, in Hollywood? I mean, let me, let me start by saying doing anything in that respect is a big, it would be major success, right? And I don't know that anybody can sort of do that individually. Yeah. You know, look, the people that I've really, that I've admired lately are, are people like Ava DuVernay, I just think that, you know, the the table and room and building she has essentially built for herself and the way that she is populating it is just, it's incredible. Um, And the fact that she's done that while making like the movies that she's made and the television shows that she's made and all within the last decade, I I genuinely don't understand how that woman only has 24 hours in a day. Um, And then is really disciplined about how she uses the resources and the access that she has. I, I just, you know, I think she sets a standard that many of us are trying to aspire to. Um, but no, I don't know that there's anybody else that rises to her standard, mm-hmm. if I'm being totally honest. She's a singular figure in this business. And again, I, may, maybe it's easier for her because it really just is who she is. So it's not like she's trying hard. But even still, like I said, if, even if it weren't for all of the sort of good she's doing that doesn't directly benefit her, her output exceeds my uh, (laughs) comprehension. But can you tell us, can you tell us and our audience a little bit more about what she is doing? You know, what, what things she's doing that no one else is seemingly doing? Maybe more people could do it. Yeah. I mean, like, let's see, she hired only women to direct her television series. I think she, and probably ended up giving 30 women their first ever TV directing job. And by the way, that number's probably higher now. That was just the last time I heard of it. And and at the end, she jokes all the time about how she would love to have most of them come back, but after they got their first job, they're so in demand elsewhere that, they, that like she can't even fit herself in on their dance card. Um, she they graduate ha- from her school too fast. She's. Uh, I mean, kind of, of yeah. <laughs> and she sends them off into the world, and it's like, hey, you know, I need you to direct this episode, and they're like, well, I've, I'm booked for the next two years. Thank you again <laughs> for giving me this opportunity. Um, and she's only too happy about that, you know. Yeah. Um, she launched a distribution company in Array that that distributes via Netflix all of these extraordinary films about women of color. 
that otherwise wouldn't get distribution. And by lending her name and by lending the array name to them and using her relationship with Netflix to make them available to the world, like these things are getting seen by communities and by people that would never have gotten seen before. Um, and those are just the public ways. You know, not only that, her, her offices um, have sort of become a hub of the community. She is tireless about promoting other filmmakers' work on social media and, and praising other people's successes. I just, you know, I don't want to turn this into like an Ava fan podcast. But again, I just think that she's doing the work of making sure that she's not the only one through the door. And she's making sure that she dismantles the door on her way in and then builds a new property on whatever, on the other side of whatever, wherever that door used to be. Um, yeah. Look, I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm not working at that level yet. I, I got, I got to step up my game. And part of the reason why I feel like I do is because I see what's possible and I want to be able to accomplish some more goals. Do you have any um, specific goals that you want to share of, you know, what you either are working on now or hope to be soon? Look, I think I've always said that the North Star of the Blacklist is to identify and celebrate great screenwriting wherever it exists. Uh, and the, that the best way to do that is to help those things get made with the involvement of the writer who initially created it. The one addendum I would use to that is that I would say, especially in places where Hollywood has historically failed to find that talent. And so I think that generally speaking, what I'm just trying to do is make sure that we follow that North Star. And I think it's very clear what our path is. I'm just saying, like, I'm not, I, I haven't distributed a bunch of films from women of color directors that, like, average, I think, like, in the high 80s on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I'll get there eventually, but, like the track record is impressive. Um, and, 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 you know, it, look, it's like as an athlete, you're like, okay, I'm a decent, like when I was in high, when, I, when I played high school soccer, I was okay. Like I was junior and senior year. I started on my, my high school team, but I had a younger brother who was literally on the U S national team under 17 national team. And so like in my family, I had this person who I was like, that's what really good looks like. But it made me work harder because I was like, well, we share the same genes. I, I guess I might be able to be a little bit more close to his image. And I think looking at Ava and, and have, you know, being blessed at having known her personally since before she was even directing, it's like, oh, OK, you're a real person and you've been able to, to figure out how to do this and you've been committed to this point of view. Maybe I should be trying to, to, to you know to live the same ambition because I, I see that it's possible with somebody who I know. You also got to figure out how to time travel and create more than 24 hours in a day. I mean, day, that, so. that is, look, I've made that joke at least a half dozen times on social media and, and she always plays it off like, ha ha ha. And I'm like, I know you have a time machine. You, know <laughs> you just got to let me or borrow it. Or she sleeps it. two hours a night and is figured out I mean, or something. Work. I don't, I don't, I don't. Ava, loan me, loan me the time machine. That's all yeah, I'm we'll saying. Yeah, we'll have her on the show and get her to finally reveal the secrets. Obviously, all of this is happening concurrently with the COVID pandemic and everything. And I'm curious, Franklin, from an industry perspective, like, are deals getting made? Are things happening? Like, how slow is is the industry right now? Or how, how frozen is it? Look, I think things are paralyzed because we just don't know how to return to production in a way that can sort of guarantee the safety of our coworkers. And I think that, you know, if you ask most people in the business, like, when are you going to go back and shoot things? The, the answer, and I think it's the right answer, is when it's safe. And we're still trying to figure out what that means. In the meantime, you know, there's a lot that you can do that, that isn't on set. 
And I think that, you know, the industry, once it got its feet underneath it, has been trying to do a lot of that work. So, for example, we've seen downloads on the Blacklist website, right? People looking for new scripts from new writers so that they can go make those things eventually. We've seen downloads from industry professionals up 60% year over year compared to the same period last year since mid-March. And I've gotten a ton of incoming calls from, from very high-level people being like, you know, my client X, Y, or Z is looking for something like this. What do you have? This is literally what you do. So I think that people are reading a lot. I think they're acquiring material. I think they're improving the quality of scripts. I think that they're trying to more fully, fully realize and better prepare for what production is going to look like, uh, which, you know, fingers crossed will result in more fully realized movies because you're not just moving into production because, well, that's the timeline we have to. Um, so I think people are keeping themselves busy with creative output. Um, and then simultaneously trying to figure out like what the future looks like uh, in the short term for production, if at all. And then, you know, given what those changes suggest, what does that mean for the kind of stories we can tell and how we tell them in the future? Um, it's something I think about in, in kind of addition to that, like mentioning, you know, someone like Ava uh, supporting first time directors and, and giving them their first job and all that is a lot of first time directors would at this point be, you know, working on the, the, the Sundance film for next year and, and, and or, or anything else on the festival circuit. And it's just hard to think about all of that being such a question mark when that's such a vital part of of how a lot of um, sort of people from outside of the machine to some extent um, get their get their work seen. Yeah, it's I, I, I genuinely don't know what the answer is. And I, I really, you know, I have a lot of friends at Sundance, Carrie Putnam, Michelle Satter, um, Cameron Bailey at Toronto. Like, I don't know what that world looks like. I think the fundamental thing that we're all struggling with is that there are just so many unknown unknowns, right? Like, there's the virus, there's the, you know, the sort of governmental response to the virus, there's what that means for the leadership in the industry in terms of how they structure things. It's, it's you know, how do audiences respond to the notion that the virus exists? Like, are you willing to go to a movie theater? Are you willing to go to a socially distanced movie theater? Like, we just don't know the answers to these questions or even whether those are the right questions to be answering. And so a lot of it, it's not really wait and see, but on some level we're waiting and seeing like the way the world changes and then we're adapting based on that. Yeah, we've gone back and forth a lot on our predictions of what people will want to see when this is all over. And I think it's eventually become clear that like there is no when this is all over, it's just going to be with us for a really long time. Do you have any gut sense of like what are the movies that might thrive uh, when people are willing to either go to movie theaters or there's new things being released or in whatever way we watch movies in the future? I have theories, right? Like I have theories that people are going to want to watch a lot of comedy. Like we're going to need a distraction uh, from the state of the world ideally ones that still engage with the state of the world without feeling like they do. I have a feeling that people are going to want to watch movies about people coming together to solve complex problems successfully. I, I have a feeling... <laughs> I love that, yeah. I mean, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of, like, because yes. I, I, that sounds great to me, and I'm trying to think of what movie I've seen that fits that like, bill. Like, like, I would say, like, The Martian, right? Yeah, yeah, feels, yeah, yeah. Feels like it's in that zone. And, and I was going to say, like, the other thing is I feel like people are going to be interested in, like people using science to solve complex problems, <laughs> uh, which is why the Martian sort of just sticks out. behaving competently yeah. Yeah, in exactly, a way exactly, that doesn't exactly. make you want to die of embarrassment. I mean, like that that may feel like a parody in several years at a government <laughs> level. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. And I think, uh, you know, it's like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography on some level. You know it when you see it. But look, I think uh, there's a fundamental truth 
That is that people just want to see good stories well told. And I don't know at the end of the day whether that will ever change. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what should I be writing right now? Should I be writing a pandemic script? And I'm like, just write something good. Just write something good that makes people feel something. You probably shouldn't write a pandemic script. Like a lot of people are going to try to do that. And a lot of them are going to be bad. And, you know, none of us have had the opportunity to process any of what we're living through right now. Lord knows I still am. I mean, if you feel strongly about it, by all means, write it. And I wish you the best in, in, in that it's, you know, parasite level good, but you know, it probably won't be. So just find something that you feel passionate about that you believe you can write well and, and, and write that because, you know, would I still watch Fury Road tomorrow if it was released? Absolutely. Does it have a direct commentary on what's happening right now? I'm sure I could find one, but that's not what I'm going to be thinking about when I watch it. I keep thinking about how In the Heights is going to be the movie that heals me. Like eventually when I get to see it in the theaters, I just like want to think about crowds of people in a New York City street like dancing. It sounds amazing. Anthony Ramos heals everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he has that smile that just makes you feel like it's I, be okay. I'm not even joking. I Anthony Ramos is the kind of person. And look, I, I'm, again, a friend of mine. There has never been a time where I have been upset and run into him and I haven't left the conversation feeling genuinely better about the world. He just he just has that spirit. And um, yeah, so they, yeah, in the heights may well be that if we can just get that far. June 2021. I mean, who, who, who knows what the world's going to look like by then? It's a whole <laughs> year from now. Whew. So now I'm joined by Tanana Reeve Du, an author and professor and screenwriter. Uh, am I missing any credits of yours? You uh, you have accomplished many things. Uh, that's about it. Those are the big ones. <laughs> a horror expert as well, which we're uh, definitely going to get into. Um, thank you so much for, for getting on Zoom with me. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is what is pleasure? At this right, right. what is pleasure? The word pleasure is relative. I mean, I'm actually glad to be able to do this because it takes my mind off of uh, what's happening outside. Well, unfortunately, I want to talk to you about the piece you wrote for us, which is sort of about what's Oh, sure. Well, that was short-lived. But anyway, <laughs> it was a nice escape while it lasted. We'll get there. We'll get back into horror movies and, and fun stuff. Um, but you wrote a piece for us at VanityFair.com this week, um, reflecting on the ongoing protests over the death of George Floyd, and then um, reflecting back on your own childhood, not just as someone who um, you, you have this vivid memory of the protest that emerged after uh, a killing of an unarmed black man in Miami in 1980, um, but as the daughter of civil rights activists. So you kind of you've paid close attention, but you also were kind of born paying close attention to all of this. Um, and you write so well about it and everyone should read it, obviously. Um, but I was curious about something that was less in your piece about what what perspective your parents gave you on protests like this. Like, what does it taught you to pay attention to? What do you look for um, in protests like the current moment or ones in the past? Is there is there kind of a rule book that you, that you look out for and on how it's done? Um, my parents, were, you know, came of age uh, as my mother as an undergraduate and my father as a law student during the student protest movement of the 1960s. So the greater the numbers, the better. You know, you get as many people as you can to go. Of course, there were um, very strict nonviolent principles in the organization my mother was involved with, CORE, was the name of the organization, um, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the SCLC, Martin Luther King's organization also had that. But I, I will point out that while a lot of activists from the 60s adhered to these 
rules of nonviolence because they were a part of the protocols. You would practice going limp as the police tried to pull you away, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't necessarily mean they were pacifists. It was, uh, at least in my mother's case, it was strategic nonviolence. So just as it was an interracial movement that, that helped uh, create impact in the 60s, Black-led very often, but, but interracial. I, I see shades of that now. That's the one hopeful piece I'm taking because Black people cannot solve racism by themselves. We just can't do it. If we try, uh, we would waste so much energy and time and resources that we could be using, you know, raising our families and trying to make sure our children are all being happy, right? There's just, we're outnumbered. We're 12%, I believe, of the national population. But I hope more people are now starting to see the relationship between this kind of bullying policing um, and a, a system, a system of policing that considers this behavior pretty much par for the course, completely entitled to it, can't even stop it when they're at marches that are protesting the brutality. It's just so entrenched. There's a part in your essay where you talk about the the march you were talking about earlier that your sisters went to and you were 14 and you went to the movies instead and wanted to see a silly comedy and uh, and kind of it was a form of escapism that didn't really work it seems I think you came out and saw the protests in front of you um, yep. but is that is that part of your origin story as a movie fan as a screenwriter as someone who engages in that of like of seeing movies both as an escape and then as you talk about with horror a way of actually you know processing what's going on in the world absolutely and it's both things um comedy and horror to me or are kind of two sides of the same therapeutic coin yeah um some days i'll watch a horror movie every day and when i was in my car i was listening to stand-up you know on my way to work all day every day so i get my dose of laughing and i get my dose of scares and I'll start with the comedy. Uh, the movie was The Nude Bomb, <laughs> starring Don Adams. <laughs> I have never in my life heard of that. <laughs> it's not, it, you know, it's not a good movie. Um, but I'm telling you, even I, I had a choice and my family was all geared up. Everyone's ready to go and full of just, you know, pain and anger. And they got their signs. And I was just like, as a, as a child civil rights activist, let's just say I had spent a lot of time on picket lines right. over various issues. <laughs> And I was not having it uh, that night. I was like, I don't, I don't see what, what I can't. No, I can't hold a sign right now. And so, yeah, comedy was an escape for me. And, and also you mentioned horror. Um, I think in a lot of ways, my love for horror, which started in childhood. It was my mother, in fact, who was the culprit. She, she the activist, you know, she was the one who a police officer saw leading a protest in Tallahassee, Florida in 1960, pointed her out and said, I want you, and threw a tear gas canister into her face. Wow. So she had this lasting injury. Um, she wore dark glasses all the time after that. So my whole life, I never knew her at a point when she wasn't usually wearing dark glasses. I think when I listen to my mother tell her stories about being tear gassed and being jailed for 49 days, she and her sister, my aunt Priscilla uh, Krause, um, who's still living now, I, I really felt like I didn't quite measure up in terms of my capacity for trauma. I compared to them, they had grown up in the Jim Crow South and they'd been involved in civil rights in the 60s to the point where my aunt fled the country after she was kicked in the stomach by a police officer. So this is, you know, my family has been directly impacted by police violence. Um, 
I felt kind of like a, a weakling. I, I had this comfortable two-parent home in the suburbs and newly integrated United States, and I'd never really been tested by much. I was like, I'm, I'm not ready. I am not ready for whatever it is the big, the big disaster. So I think I spent my whole life watching horror movies, <laughs> bringing it back to horror. Um, and my mother, I think, really did soothe her emotional wounds with horror. Uh, and I, I regret deeply that I came to this revelation only after she passed away, because we never really talked about it. It was, it was just something I always knew about her. She raised us watching. Um, what were her movies? What were her horror movies? Well, it, all of them, but starting with the old Universal ones, the uh, black and white ones, the werewolf, Dracula, the mummy, the mole people, the fly. I saw them all. We were raised on that stuff. And then when I was 16, she gave me my first Stephen King novel. And, and you know, that was it. I was gone. It was The Shining. And uh, the, just the level of characterization, the realism of the scares, I, I believed it. I, I, you know, and I've been a Stephen King fan ever since. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, took my personal direction in terms, I mean, it, it took me a while to wrestle with who I was as an artist. Uh, am I allowed to write about horror? You know, I didn't know any other black horror writers at the time I was, I was coming of age. I never read any horror by a black writer. And I, I was worried that my parents being civil rights activists is, is would I have enough respect even if I wrote horror? All these things were going through my mind. And, and, and it wasn't just me. As I got older, uh, I went to college, I, I started to get pushed away from my, my voice as an artist. I started to write white characters, first of all. I was disappearing in my own work because of exposure to canon and, and not reading enough black authors as a part of my curriculum despite having been practically homeschooled in Black history at home. It's amazing how that conditioning just snapped out. You know, you, you get exposed to uh, the so-called canon. And, and I think a lot of writers face identity crises when the canon doesn't match what they want to write. And so I was getting it racially and I was getting it with genre, by the way, as well. So, yeah, there was nobody pushing for genre in my college creative writing program. And I really had to sort of do some soul searching and come back to horror as, as an artist. But the, the thing about it that still appeals to me, and I'm an executive producer on Shudder's documentary Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, which talks about really the uh, conversation between artists who are of their time, you know, and telling stories of their time through the horror genre. Because horror, as a lot of people discuss in this documentary, is such an effective tool for amplifying our fears and making them larger than life. Jordan Peele's Get Out electrified me because it was the first time in a while there had been a horror film that really went after racism that directly. Uh, Rusty Cundiff did it in his film Tales from the Hood back in the 90s, you know, where you had the very first segment about police brutality. So, Artists have, have been trying to express this through horror. I try to express it. My novel, The Good House, is also kind of racism is the monster, but it's also what the racism does to you, what, what it can do to us when, we, when we're in trauma, how we can act out against uh, other people uh, from rage and loss of self uh, and, and sort of loss of your North Star kind of thing. So I've addressed it in my work. Um, 
But I, I find it very, very appealing and comforting, even if it's not about race. You've done, you know, like mostly writing um, as an author, but done some work writing for scripts and Hollywood. Do you feel like that conversation about representation is becoming more real and not just people being like, oh, well, you know, I, I would like to have more black people in my movie, but I just can't. And then they, they kind of let it go. Like, is it is it more concrete now? I'm going to be real careful here. <laughs> as, as I am on Twitter all the time, I have to remind myself, hey, you're trying to work in this town. Uh, but <laughs> no, no naming names. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, but quite, you know, some months ago, maybe even up to a year ago, someone uh, sort of made a splash on Twitter by saying there weren't any black horror writers or screenwriters. Nice. And it's just like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Did like an alarm go off in your office? And it's just like, wait a second. All my friends are black writing. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? So there, so there's this, this disconnect. And I think there are uh, a lot of issues in writers' rooms where there aren't enough black writers or there's only one, which is a horrible position to be in, uh, be, to be like the sole, sometimes person sort of defending a point of view. And it's, you know, that's a lot to to put on someone's shoulders, that, that slow responsibility. So I'm encouraged when I see more and more photos of writer's rooms. And I often joke that I, I really want to see the writer's room before I even start watching this show. And then in the film side, of course, you have the one-two punch of uh, Black Panther and Get Out that has busted genre wide open. We were poised to have a really strong summer of black horror films before COVID-19 with uh, Antebellum starring Janelle Monae and the new Saw movie uh, with Chris Rock and and the new Candyman film um, directed by Nia DaCosta uh, from Jordan Peele's Monkey Paw. And that was that's an exciting time. I'm sure those films will release however they release, whenever they release. All of that is just positive. I, I tell writing students all the time, there has never been a better time to be an artist in Hollywood, period. Uh, I don't, probably no matter what, but particularly as a writer. Now that doesn't mean everything is perfect because there's still a disconnect between the talent and the gatekeepers. I think there's still a vein of conservatism at some studios where as a black creator, if your story is uh, focused just a little bit too much on historical racism or uh, that kind of a message or race is anything but superficial, um, there's still some pushback. But on the other hand, I will say that I am absolutely behind the idea that having a Black lead where in a story that has nothing to do about race is its own kind of revolutionary statement, right? So there, there are valid ways to represent blackness across the spectrum, whether it's Get Out and Racism is the Point, or it's a movie like uh, J.D. Dillard's Sweetheart on Netflix, which is a creature horror movie with a biracial woman in the lead. And it has nothing to do, as I can recall, with race, but it's still revolutionary that he or she is in the lead. And I won't say other reasons why, but it's, you know, yes, (laughs) it's all a win. What worries me in the industry is, again, that that short memory span. Um, Like, I'm afraid that everyone will want to, after all, the smoke is cleared, literally, and the tear gas is cleared, and hopefully we move on beyond this, this horrible leap backwards in terms of our American leadership. A lot of people are craving for so-called normal without remembering that Black Lives Matter was actually born under President Obama, not President Trump. 
that this policing issue predated Trump and there were attempts to address it that might have borne more fruit had they continued. Uh, I don't think our current administration helped matters at all, but, uh, but we certainly, I think, could have moved forward some. But when you're talking about really, really entrenched systems, especially well, well financed systems and that are uh, involved with the military, et cetera, it's, it's tough uh, to make inroads there when there's this timidity from mayors and prosecutors. And I don't know what's going on with the police unions, but deep, 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 serious change needs to happen. And the same thing is true in, in Hollywood. And you see that timidity in the, in Hollywood the same that you do in, in leaders like, in know, politics. I think people are trying a lot harder than they were <laughs> 10 years ago. So I will, I will say that. I personally have had a lot more people reach out to me um, as uh, an advisor on, a, on scripts, uh, you know, before the virus, we had set up a consulting gig with a studio over a movie. And so there's definitely more of an effort for outreach to like bridge the gap between the things that studios and screenwriters don't know and the things that creators of color do know and yeah. help people walk back and forth across that bridge, you know? So what I would rather see happen is rather than taking a script that was written with no particular ethnicity in mind and just making the character black, which is sometimes fine and has produced, you know, some really interesting uh, films. I would I, I would prefer, though, to see a black creator get their story sold. Right. And that same actress could star in that story. And and maybe just maybe that story could have just a little uh, seasoning of racial sensibility and racial history in it where it isn't just sort of a switch out the actor and anybody will do kind of situation uh -huh. right and 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 it can be effective it we can't and in fact i don't want to let this go on too long before i discuss the real soul searching we have to do in hollywood which isn't about horror but it's about our history of and love affair with police programming and what it means in terms of how difficult it is to enact change in the real world. And I'll give one example, because I was just watching Dexter last night and it hit me, you know, even if I like tried, was like, I'm not good tonight. I just can't. I'm not going to watch any shows that have to do with policing. How do you do it? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. You can't flip around cable. There's <laughs> nothing but law and order. Right. I wasn't even thinking about Dexter at the police station. Yeah, those cops and the cops on the street are not the same cops to me in my head. Right. It's like, this is yeah. Dexter. This is Laguerta. Yeah. This is, you know, and, and here's the, the thing. Um, and it's not that there aren't real life Laguertas and, and hopefully not real life Dexters, but real life police officers who, who do mirror the police officers that we love to love in front of our television screens at night. But those shows are not reflecting these systemic abuse issues that are existing in real life, unless it's a show like The Shield where that's the point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe some of the corruption, you saw some of that on The Wire, which was a little grittier. But for the most part, you're not going to like be like doop-de-doop-de-doop -doop watching your favorite cop show and his partner goes off and shoots an unarmed black man without any reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It isn't. And it goes back so far. I'm an old radio buff. Uh, I, I have an app um, for, uh, for old radio shows. So I've listened to the entire radio run of Dragnet. I'm pretty sure. Wow. I, I don't think I missed an, an, a single episode. That was episode. like decades, right? It was decades. And I, I would listen to it in my car on my way to work. UCLA is a long drive. So, 
<laughs> every single episode, I'm telling you, every single one. And there was never a Dragnet episode where it was proven that a police officer had done wrong. Yeah. Not one. And the ones where they were accused of doing wrong, they were either not really police officers, they were impersonating a police officer, or it turned out they didn't actually do the thing they were accused of, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a word for that, and that word is propaganda, okay? <laughs> and it's very entertaining propaganda, but when you look now at like how many police shows there are and how many of these officers' homes were going, we are... We, all of us as the viewer, are empathizing with those in the uniform. And I think it makes it really, really difficult for some people to open their eyes and see the difference between what policing is on TV, which is where so often you hear people say, stop, put the gun down. You have so much to live for. And watching the Tamir Rice video, the 12 year old boy in Cleveland who was playing with a toy gun who didn't even get a warning before the car barely stopped before the officer shot him, there, there, there's a disconnect, okay? And it's not that every day on the streets there's another Tamir Rice, thank God, but there's enough of a disconnect that it, it's a real barrier. Um, I feel like I could ask you 10 more questions, but I also should wrap up at some point. So I'll ask you one last question. Um, um, you mentioned Dexter as not being good uh, escapist programming in this moment, and I'm curious if you have no, any... actually it any is. Uh, <laughs> except, for the, the, except that it's about police. I mean, if you can sort of, like I, like I said, I've, I've like separated it out in my head. It's not yeah. real police. It's Hollywood police. <laughs> but do you have any recommendations for horror or I guess anything else that maybe isn't pure escapism, but kind of does what you were talking about for horror and kind of helps filter the current moment through things? Like what, what, what would you send someone to watch if they want to kind of process what we're all watching on the news right now? That is a, that is a question I should have seen coming. <laughs> I mean, I guess get out is always the answer. I was so. going to say, I mean, obviously get out. Get out is eminently rewatchable even yeah, when there have, isn't a national <laughs> crisis. Yeah. But I think against the backdrop, even, you know, some people who didn't quite absorb the messaging uh, of the story would have a better idea of what Jordan Peele was up to uh, in telling that story. And, and so definitely Get Out is, is, is good for now. Um, let me think. You know, I'm a big fan of Shudder. I, I can't always remember movie titles, but I watch so many foreign horror films, you know, just random foreign horror films. And so does AMC's horror streaming service, we should clarify, right? Do I have that right? Yes, yes. So um, One Cut of the Dead is on Shudder, if you haven't seen that. Um, and uh, Horror Noir, of course, the documentary that I helped executive produce. And I'm not really just saying it. Even if I weren't involved, <laughs> I swear I would be saying this because it's literally about how horror artists have been addressing social crises sort of through their art generation after generation. And it's a really good illustration, I think, of how, how to apply art to um, creating a better world and also to, to create guided escapism, right? So it's escapism because it's not just a documentary. It's not uh, like whatever you're watching isn't just what's actually happening. You're not running a video camera outside of your window, but yeah. at the same time, it is guided to create um, a feeling of some kind of, of either it means something on a deeper level 
or it teaches or or it gives you emotional satisfaction. There's a lot of revenge in uh, Rusty Cundiff's Tales from the Hood. A lot of bad people who do bad things and get theirs, which we don't often see in real life. So that can be very satisfying. Um, I would suggest people watch Candyman, the original mm-hmm. Candyman with Tony Todd, uh, who gives a great, you know, performance uh, for the ages, really. And there's a lot to admire cinematically about Candyman, but also it's it, it you can feel that it's a bit dated in terms of its its sort of racial messaging, <laughs> and maybe mm-hmm. that would be sharper now. Maybe you didn't notice so much when you were a kid, but the the way Helen kind of goes on this expedition in the urban jungle and and how over the top feces on the wall and this kind of stuff just pay attention you know this was something that was attempting to answer some questions about race but it also raises other questions let's just say and i i haven't seen the reboot but there is a reboot coming out nia DaCosta's reboot is coming out soon and so i think it would be very interesting to compare those side by side because yeah. one of the key, I haven't seen the new one, but I'm imagining one of the key differences is that the original Candyman is told through and aimed toward a white lens. It's, it's aimed at a white audience member. And I think the new Candyman is going to be through a black lens. So it will be more of a black story. The original Candyman had a lot of black bodies in it, um, but it was not a black story. And I do want to say that for people who are interested in some of these films we've been talking about, Tales on the Hood, uh, from the hood, uh, Candyman. Yeah. My husband, Stephen Barnes, and I do have an online black yeah, horror course. Neat. Yeah, this is the one I was teaching at UCLA. So Steve and I created an online version, which, you know, without the grades and tui- the high tuition, <laughs> much, much smaller <laughs> tuition, it's a 10-week digital download black horror course where we have lectures, we have suggested reading and viewing. So it's not just film, it's literature as well. Um, there's a fantastic uh, novelette, which is a very long short story called The Devil in America that's free online at Tor.com by a writer named uh, Kai Ashanti Williams. That is a great example of black horror as with history as horror. But in any case, you can learn all about this with my um, online black horror course, The Sunken Place at www.sunkenplaceclass.com. Um, okay, so in addition to the second place class, people can follow you on Twitter. If, if you're tweeting too much, I guess we should all be following. At Tanana Reeve, do the hard part is spelling it, but it's T A N A N A R I V E, and then the last name is just like your bill is due. D U E. I should be the only one there, and also on Instagram, which I'm starting to use a little bit more. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm getting a lot of new followers, just like I did after the uh, election. And I think it was mostly people who were like, ah, what's happening? I need to find someone who can tell me what the hell is going on right now. So I feel some (laughs) of that energy coming from my new followers. And um, I feel for them. But, you know, and and, uh, I'm primarily an artist and I definitely like to amplify activist voices. I'm very careful sometimes about using the word activist, because when I think of activists, I think of my mom getting dragged to jail. But the fact of the matter is activism takes many forms. And I, social media activism can and has been very effective. So in that sense, I am a social media activist. But I also, you know, when we're not in the middle of a huge crisis like this, like to sh- throw in some, some humor 
Hey, get some humor, horror recommendations, and activist information. That's a. <laughs> I did one open oh, mic in my. I think I was about thirty when I did an open mic night at Coconuts Comedy Club in Miami. So I'm, I'm kind of a frustrated uh, wannabe comedian who didn't, didn't want to go on the road <laughs> or do more than one show. So that really got in the way of my career as a comedian. But, <laughs> but uh, I actually was just very selfishly protecting my writing space. That was the yeah, one thing I, yeah. I really wanted to do, and, and I figure I can always take up stand up when I when I get tired of that. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Uh, In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. And uh, a lot of the pieces we've been talking about in this episode, including the piece that Franklin Leonard wrote for us uh, in 2019 about the Academy and Hollywood. Uh, And you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, where we love hearing from you. And on our own, uh, Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylos. And I'm at uh, Katie Rich. Yeah, I'm just Franklin Leonard at Twitter. Probably the best place to find me. <laughs> go start from there and then find everything yeah, else. Yeah, there you go. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best prescription for what really might fix things at the end of all this goes to Franklin Leonard. Anthony Ramos heals everybody. 